Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie-Weissman, the Editor-in-Chief here at Modern Retail. This week, we have Ryan Bartlett. He is the co-founder and CEO of the apparel brand True Classic, which is relatively new. I believe they launched in 2019, but they've had some pretty explosive growth over the last few years. They have some cool ambitions. I want to go into just sort of the story behind True Classic. And also, you've done some interesting stuff on the digital advertising front, which is something that we love here at Modern Retail. So I'd love to get into all of that. But Ryan, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So uh, first, for tell, tell me a little about yourself. How did you get into the t-shirt space? Yeah, so I mean, it's kind of a long journey, but I'll just give you the short version. I'm essentially, you know, at my core, I'm a creative. Uh, I, I started in music. Um, that was a rough road of it. So I, I eventually <laughs> kind of gave up and tried something else. It, poker kind of took over my life for a while. So I did that for a living. Um, so essentially, you know, before starting true classic, I was a college dropout, failed musician, failed poker player turned, um, entrepreneur. So eventually I ended up starting an SEO company, learned a lot about digital marketing, did that for a decade. Uh, I also learned a lot about what not to do when starting a business through a lot of the people that I was having as clients. So they wanted to spend money on really frivolous things and we would do it and it wouldn't work, of course. So prior to starting this, I came in with a ton of experience. So it wasn't like I learned everything on the fly with True Classic. I essentially was able to start it and hit the ground running right away. Also, you know, I was able to do it with no money. So that's an important thing for people to understand. We were completely bootstrapped and, um, it really started out of my frustration with just feeling like this market was being underserved. And I would look at the landscape of people in this particular space, and I was just pretty disgusted with what I was seeing in terms of pricing. Also, just I felt like people were kind of mailing it in on the quality and the fit. So essentially, I, ju- I wanted to create something very narrow and a very specific uh, skew, which was just the T-shirt right? Just the crew neck t-shirt. I wanted to make the best possible version of that that I possibly could. I wanted to prove it out. And once I did, we eventually started rolling out into every single category that you see on the website now, which is activewear, denim, underwear, socks, absolutely everything. But um, we keep the same consistency as far as, you know, we don't gouge people on price. A lot of people trade down from like the Lululemons of the world to us because we're a quarter of the price, but we're the same quality, if not better, in material. So also when it comes to fit, which is probably our most important thing that we're known for, everything is consistent. So whether you're buying a t-shirt, a long sleeve, a polo, a dress shirt, they all have the same fit. So, and that was very much by design because I wanted to make sure that people felt like um, in a world where everything's mismatched and there's no really one size fits all type shirt for anybody, I wanted to make sure that we just kept things consistent and simple for men. So, um, yeah, that was really the start of it. And, you know, it just really kind of took off and word of mouth spread. Um, I wouldn't say I started with no money. We started with $3,000. We leveraged uh, a good bit of that towards inventory to start out. And then, um, like I would say, probably two thousand went into inventory, and the other thousand we saved for paid media. So um, I was able to. I ran all the paid media for the first nine months of the company. Basically, did all the digital marketing for us. And uh, my partner Nick 
ran the uh, apparel side. So he was responsible for manufacturing, um, negotiating those deals. Since I had never done manufacturing or apparel, um, I had to bring in a guy that was a pro. I was not coming in here thinking I was the expert at apparel by any means. Um, I knew that I wanted to build an amazing community. I wanted to build an amazing product. I knew how I wanted it to fit and feel, but I needed Nick to be able to really bring that to life um, on the on the t-shirt side. So we also brought in Matt, who was kind of like our finance guy who understood startup life. He also understood M&A. So he's become very handy now at the level we're at because we're just constantly talking to bankers. Um, so yeah, it's been quite the ride. Yeah, that's, that's a lot there. I wanted to dig into that. So let's start at the beginning because there were two sort of theses when you, when you launched it. One was uh, on the the launch and marketing side that people were doing things wrong. They were, you know, misspending and you knew how to do the correct marketing, but also on, on the the product side. So which would you say came first? Was it that you knew you wanted to start a business and you knew how to launch it marketing wise, or was it that you had the idea there are, there isn't a good mid range shirt company and I want to be behind that. You know, what's crazy. I would have if you asked me that a month ago, I would have said that it was the digital side. But my brother reminded me of a story that I told him when I was like 19, which is crazy that my mom sent me this text message exchange that they had. I actually had this idea a long time ago, decades ago, when I was in my teens. And I told my brother, because we, we, we used to go to this store in, in the Bahamas uh, called Caraloha, which was, my family had a, a spot out there we would go every year. And they were these shirts that were like really soft bamboo shirts. And uh, it turns out bamboo is pretty expensive to make. Uh, I tried to make that the true classic shirt, but it, it was just way too Didn't much. work out? No, it, it, the cost was insane. So we abandoned that idea pretty early. But um, I remember walking into that store and I didn't have my size. And I told my brother at the time, and I have the text messages as proof that I said, someday I'm going to build a t-shirt company so that I can have the perfect shirt. And I completely forgot about this until they just reminded me. So it turns out I actually knew I was going to start this 20 years ago. Wow. I'm 40. So um, I listen, I knew that I wanted to do e-com eventually. I felt like the service industry was great and I built a really nice business, but it wasn't gratifying. I felt like I wanted to create something for people and I wanted to put a mission behind it. And I wanted to put, more importantly, a lot of intentionality behind whatever I was doing, whether it was, you know, the marketing, the customer service. I just felt like, you know, I could try harder than everyone in my space. And ultimately, I was hoping that the, the audience would notice. But um, yeah, I hope that answers your question. No, that answers my question. Absolutely. So then talk to me about, you know, apparel isn't new, you know, e-com isn't new. What worked so that you were able to grow the business from the beginning? Was it just the messaging, you know, like, and wh- why were you able to make it such that you you had the right shirt that was the right material, but at the right price? Like, w- talk to me about th- through all of that and how that worked in, back in the day. I mean, it was kind of a hunch, right? Like, I just knew that this, I, at first I was like, this is going to be a side project. We'll kind of see how this goes. I felt like I have a really good grasp on what the market wants. And the more research I did, the more it just, it really set with me that this was the right thing. So I definitely took a lot of time to think about it before I launched into shirts because I was throwing around all sorts of ideas. I wanted to do like a matcha brand. I wanted to do like a lab diamond brand. I wanted to do like 10 different things. But um, I just kept coming back to this because it just felt like my frustrations have to be shared with a lot of people. So when I talked to Nick about it, 
you know, we worked through the design, we worked through what we wanted it to feel like, but ultimately it was a leap of faith. And if it wasn't going to work while well, I was out $3,000 and, you know, whatever amount of work I put into building the website and making it CRO friendly. So, you know, it was part of it was just really just betting on ourselves and saying, okay, this looks like it's pretty wide open white space and we need to just kind of jump on it and see what happens. And after the first month, we we knew we were onto something big. I don't think we realized it was going to be this big, but um, you know, the TAM is pretty enormous that we've realized, yeah. and not just People in the U.S. Do wear shirts. <laughs> it turns out they also care how they look in shirts. More importantly, which I think most people just assumed guys didn't really care, and maybe most of them don't. I think the women in their life do care. And that's why women are a big part of our revenue because they gift this for their men and they want to upgrade the way their guy looks, right? So it's important. That makes sense. So what? how did you approach the marketing side of things? Was was it all about messaging? Was it all about channels? What, what, what was it that resonated? It was a little bit of both. I would say that coming into this, I knew that I was going to put all my eggs in the Facebook basket, so to speak. So I knew, because SEO was going to take forever, right? Like I'm not scaling this company to $100 million in two years on SEO. It's just, it's impossible. SEO is like a, a lifetime of work to like really make a dent. So I knew, I, listen, I was lucky enough to grow up in a time where this, this was pre-iOS 14, by the way. So, you know, I was lucky enough to start this back then, which was amazing, which means I didn't have to do nearly as much work on targeting and creative because Facebook was just perfectly finding the right customer every time. So I was lucky in that regard. And I also just knew how to run paid media. So I was able to really just scale this thing only on Facebook for the longest time. I didn't spend a dollar on Google or TikTok or any of those other machines for a long time. I just really built it on Facebook. And even now, I just it's still by far our largest spend daily. I would say it's like 70% of our daily spend still goes to Facebook and Instagram because it just works so well. And now we have some of the best creative to, to help complement that. So what have you done now post iOS 14? Because I feel like it's much more difficult. Are you are you still able to get even a modicum of the return you had before? Yes and no. I mean, we're, we're, we're doing such better creative that yes, it definitely works pretty awesome these days because we're not just doing one type of content. Like in the beginning, I was just doing kind of like what everyone else was doing, which is like the cool guy kind of walking around type creative, which is so lame now to think about. Now we're just like trying to make people laugh, right? Like a lot of the content we put out isn't even selling at all. It's just like, let's make them laugh, make that emotional connection. And if they want to buy it, they'll buy it. I don't need to shove it down their throat and try to force them into learning about the value propositions and why we're so much better than everyone else. Because let's be honest, everyone says nowadays, like all the marketing is always like the best fill in the blank of all time, right? Like it's all the kind of same stuff. So um, it's just gotten so much better. Now though, we have definitely diversified away from Facebook because we realized that if anything ever goes wrong with Facebook, we can't just tank the business. So we've been very strategic about spending more on Google, spending more on non-branded search on Amazon, spending more on podcasts and, and OTT and, you know, but really testing into it. Like we really are sticklers on data and analytics and understanding attribution at the highest levels. I mean, my president, uh, Ben, uh, who came from Meta, 
is an absolute data nerd. And this guy drills into every single thing we do. Um, and it's so important to understand attributions at the level that we do, because we're spending, you know, almost $200,000 a day. So you can imagine, you know, if you're spending money like that, you better be able to quantify the return. So we're doing incrementality testing on absolutely everything under the sun. And by the way, if we can't, we probably won't do it because we have to be able to prove it on some level. And if we can't do incrementality testing, we're heavily relying on our post-purchase survey as kind of our source of truth. Um, that's been a game changer, by the way. You know, we didn't do that for probably two years. And then when we started looking at our spend and breaking it down by percentage and correlating that to the post-purchase survey, we were like, wow, you know, Google is not as incremental as we thought it was. Here we thought Google was a slam dunk, you know, and I come from the Google world. So I always thought it was insanely incremental to the business. Turns out once you get that post-purchase survey, it's not even like in the top five of channels where people are responding and saying they came from. So that was really eye-opening. Um, and we learned basically that across everything, we're just living in a Facebook, Instagram world and, and everything else is a very small percentage point. I mean, do you think, I, I'm always fascinated and this is going really into the weeds, but post-purchase surveys are obviously important. Do you, A, do you have any tips for having, getting people to actually fill them out? Because I know that I have never filled one out in my life. But I, I also do think that, uh, I don't know if I would remember that I went to a brand because of Google, even if I did. Do you know what I mean? That's but I part would of remember. It. Yeah. And so I, I'm always interested. And I feel like that post-purchase surveys are usually for things like podcasts. And that kind of makes sense. And like, that's the pretty much the only way beyond having a code that you would be able to have any attribution with a podcast, right? Is that is that what, what you're saying when you're talking about this? Or like, how, how are you thinking about it? Absolutely. Podcast is really tough, by the way. I do think it's incremental to the business, but I think it's a very flawed system because let's be honest, if you listen to a podcast, you're not buying Athletic Greens the first time you hear them. You're probably buying it on the 27th time, right? The problem is, is that um, you're, you're actually not getting qualified on that coupon redemption because you had already bought them maybe, uh, somewhere along the line cause you had heard him, but you, you filled out the survey saying that you heard us on Google because you typed in athletic greens in Google and then clicked on the Google search. So it's just, it's, it's a really tough way to track. I would say that on podcasts, we, we don't take into consideration the coupon code redemption anymore because it's a small factor, but. You also, you know, if you've done this long enough, you you know that these codes get scraped and they get put on the coupon sites. So like, is someone finding us through that or are they actually finding us? From, so you don't know for sure. So that's why, again, it goes back to the survey. And so what we try to do is like on the, on the podcast thing specifically, we try to like really ratchet up the spend for like a month, right? And then we try to see if there's a correlation on the, on the post-purchase survey. Did that, you know... 2% go to 4% or 5%. Did we see that increase from day to day to day? And if it goes up, then you know that you're, you're doing something right. Now, specifically, I'm talking about podcasts. Forget everything else. So you have to kind of find a way. It's not a perfect system, but you have to kind of be able to kind of ramp up, spend up and down to kind of test the effectiveness. Because when you're spending on so many things, it's really tough to figure out where the, you know, where, where like ultimately the conversions are coming from. So that's kind of what we do. We try to do these isolated tests and spend up or down. 
um, on everything else. Because we already know Facebook's doing the best. Everything else, we just try to really dial it in as much as we can. But it's imperfect. Got it. I have another question that's really in the weeds just because it dawned on me. And I think I'm correct, but tell me if I'm not. But you said you're on OTT, right? Yeah. I think I've seen your commercials. And correct me if I'm wrong. Do you guys use a QR code? Some of them we do, and some of them we don't. Do people actually... I've always wanted to ask someone, do you actually get people using your QR code on OTT? And so can you talk about just how that's worked? What the overall strategy with that? I didn't... I did not click on it i apologize but like what is what actually happens when i when that when i do that so supposedly i mean our our director of growth would be better to answer this but i can tell you that uh, supposedly they have a way to track if you're watching an, one of our ads and you have your phone open and you uh scan it there's a way for them to like you know, basically see outside of the click, there's a way for them to correlate between your phone being in the vicinity of the TV. I don't understand it, really, the technology. <laughs> but supposedly that's how it works. They're able to somehow detect it. I don't know if I buy it necessarily, but, um, I, you know, it, it's, it's, OTT is weird. Uh, they, they give you these reports and you look at them and on the surface, you're just like, there's no way this ROAS is what you're reporting that it is. Like, I just know marketing well enough to know that like a seven ROAS is just, there's just no way like, right. Like it's just, there's there's no way it's that high. So you take everything with a grain of salt, especially when these vendors are just feeding you kind of boilerplate reports. Uh, So I don't really buy into all of it, but I do understand the importance of brand marketing and doing things for the sake of brand. But we really try not to spend too much on brand because you know, let's be honest, we drive so much of it through Facebook anyway that you're still building brand. Maybe you're not doing the billboards or whatever people talk about as brand initiatives. But if we do a brand initiative, we try to make sure we can really, really measure the effectiveness. Otherwise, it's just not really worth doing. Got it. Makes sense. All right. Sorry for all those in the weed questions, but no, I, I, I love you. Uh, so let's go to financing because you've expanded so much um, over the last couple of years. Um, you're in new categories of apparel. I know that you're expanding internationally. How, like you said, you were bootstrapped. Have you remained bootstrapped this entire time? How have you been able to, to fund this because apparel is so capital intensive? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, this is a really important one too. I feel like it, it gets glossed over a lot. I've learned a lot about finance. I'm really not a finance guy and my background is not that, but I have learned so much working in this business. But what I knew coming into this business was that I wasn't going to be one of those companies that overhires. I think that's been a large part of our success is even though we did, you know, 250 million over three years, we're still only 50 people. You know, a lot of the companies I talk to that are doing over a hundred million a year have like seven, 800 people working there. Their OPEX is through the roof which means if they don't have a really good margin, there's just no way they're making money. So I'm always the guy who's like kind of cheap when it comes to um, doing deals with vendors. Like I'm always trying to get them down to the absolute rock bottom for the sake of the company because that technology adds up quick on the balance sheet when you look at it as an aggregate amount. It's insane how much money we spend on technology um, and measuring tools and SaaS products. It's outrageous. So, you know, I've always been really bullish on keeping the company lean. And that is just super important because it also allows you to just keep reinvesting in the company. So, you know, basically just being able to be 
uh, have really strong marketing and, and getting a really solid ROAS on Facebook allows us to take all those extra dollars and reinvest them in the company. And, you know, it's different now that we're as big as we are, we are definitely talking to a lot of private equity companies and investors. And, um, because what we're thinking about now is like, do we roll out retail to like, right now we have five retail stores. So if you want to do 25 this year, um, which we could probably do, um, it would require a lot of capital. And, um, you know, since we are a lean company and we invest back into the company, we don't have a lot of like extra cash just like laying around to like launch 25 stores. So now the conversations are, yes, do we do a primary deal where we can take that capital and, um, and put it towards growth initiatives? Do we invest more in new product categories? You know, what do we think we want to do with that money? So we're having a lot of those conversations, but to answer your question, we are still bootstrapped. We have not taken any outside investor money. That may change in the future. Um, maybe even this year. I don't know. We're talking to so many people on a daily basis, but the market is so weird, as you know. It's just no one's getting the valuations they want. Even a company like ours that looks so great on paper, the problem that we're running into is these companies don't know how to value us because there's just it's so unheard of to go to $100 million in two years that they just don't even know like what kind of multiple of revenue to put us on. You know, they're just like, they're, they're like, this is the same conversation I have every day. They go, yeah, unbelievable business. This is so great, but we need more time. Cause like they just, they want to keep hedging. And uh, yeah. At the beginning of what you were talking about, you, you, you were talking about all the vendors you use, all the expenses, you keep a lean team. How do you decide what to in-house and what to, what to spend out on because it seems like if you're if you have such a lean team that means that you're going to be using a bunch of other people to, to help sort of fill in those gaps how are you making that work as you grow so quickly it's really a function of what is best in class do we feel like we can do best in class creative internally or do we feel like we need an agency for that if the answer is you can't do it internally then you have to leverage an agency so I would say that we don't make a lot of decisions like if we can save a buck here, then we'll use an agency. It's more like, you know, we need to leverage agencies to keep ourselves honest, to make sure that even though our in-house team is performing amazing, we want to keep it competitive. We want to have outside agencies bringing in new ideas. And, um, and like even with media buying, for instance, we did all of it in-house for a while. And then we felt like, at a certain point, there's so much money being invested. We can't possibly ask our in-house guy to be up at two in the morning checking to make sure Facebook isn't broken. So we need an agency who does have people on call and can do those kind of checks overnight. And it just made more sense for that part of the business. But we do just about everything in-house, not to say we don't have vendors, but even we usually do both, to be honest. And we make sure that um, both are kind of you know, keeping each other honest in that respect. How much of your business, you mentioned you're on Amazon. How much is on Amazon? So I would say we're doing about 50K a day on Amazon and we're doing, you know, between five and 600 a day on the website. So, you know, it's like 10% basically. Have you been on Amazon since the beginning? No, we just, um, we just unleashed Amazon a few months ago. Really? Um, so yeah. what made you decide to do that? Is it just because you saw search volume and that's, you know, pretty getting, much you know, the, the usual reason. Yeah, pretty much. We, I, I honestly, I was like anti Amazon. I've seen what they do to businesses. I've seen them squash businesses. Um, I was really worried about cannibalization. So, 
I think ultimately what it is, I'm realizing it's just a value add for shipping for the customers. It really is not anything more than that. It's not like we're getting a lot of net new people from Amazon that were looking for that $2 shirt and they decided to buy True Classic instead. We're not getting a lot of those people. We're just getting the guys that see us on an ad and go, hey, I would buy them. Let me see if they're on Amazon first. If they are, I'll buy them. If, they, if I have to go to the website, I don't want to do it. So that's kind of what I think that revenue is. So, but we have what we have noticed is which speaks to my point is that as we scale up budgets that we see a correlation directly tied to Amazon. So we know that it is a function of people just saying, well, I would buy this if it's on Amazon. And so they go there and then the, the revenue keeps creeping up. Is it a curated a, a selection on Amazon or do you have everything available there? Very curated and very small because what I don't want is for just to put everything on there and then have nobody coming through the website. Because let's be honest, it's obviously much better for us to have them come to the website and buy. So I just put like our core products up there, like some of the activewear, some of the core colors and shirts that everyone loves. And then for everything else, like denim and, and underwear, socks, they have to go to the website. So we're, we're careful about what we put on Amazon. We don't want to, like I said, cannibalize it too much. So let's talk about growth decisions. You sort of hit on this with you're thinking about taking outside investment. You've made a lot of big decisions. Given that as of this moment, you are still bootstrapped, but you've made a lot of pretty big plays, you have five stores, et cetera. How do you decide what is worthy of, of the expense to do? Like, how, And how do you go about, you know, when you go into a new category that that's going to work out? Because it seems like it has to be a very deliberate decision, you know? Yeah, I mean, listen, the reality is, is we just don't know. We live in a world where everyone thinks they know, especially people that, you know, uh, that I talk to on the outside, everyone thinks they know. We live in a, in a world here at True Classic where we just don't know, and we're going to test into it. So like with anything, what we usually do is we start very small and we prove it out. And if it looks promising, we ramp up and we ramp up very quickly. That's kind of the important part. So it's not that we really do so much research. We really are just like, go, 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 fail, break it, fail, break it. And then eventually we'll win after we've, you know, stumbled a few times and tested and, and, and come out the other side. But it's much more of a function of just trying and seeing what works and, and what, because, you know, we have a million opinions here in the organization and we're just like, okay, put it to the test. You know, if, if we really think that strongly about it, then let's see. And then, you know, like with activewear, we bet small originally and it, it took really well. And then we really ramped it up. Same with denim. We thought denim was going to be like nothing for us. We didn't think anyone was really going to love it. And it turned out we like sold out in like a week of all our denim. So it cost us a little bit in the short term because we didn't have enough inventory, but at least we, we got, at least we didn't bury ourselves in a ton of inventory and then not be able to sell through it. You know, so I'll, I'll take the, you know, the going small versus uh, over inventorying and putting ourselves in a bad situation. Do you find for at least the, the product expansions that they're generally tailored towards existing customers? Are they people who bought the teas and are like, now I want to get denim? Or are, are you finding that it's increasing the overall c customer? It's both. It definitely starts out on the retention side. It definitely, like, we, we use a lot of that data from our existing customers to say, hey, like, if we did denim, would you be interested? And they all say yes, or the majority say yes. And then we're like, okay, let's try it. Let's, you know, we got their feedback from the customer. They say they want it. Let's deliver and see if they love it. Then the, then the issue is, 
can we actually make this a category? Meaning, can we spend on paid media to and do prospecting and make this a real business? So that's kind of like the net, the new bucket that we have to kind of. So once we've proven it out with our existing, we're like, okay, we're onto something. Then we come up with a bunch of creative. We spend on Facebook. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. And if it doesn't work, we don't just give up on the category. We just go back to work on the creative and say, okay, what could we have done better? What can we learn from this failure? And, and then we just keep testing into it. And eventually we en- ended up winning in every category, but it took some of the categories longer than others to prove out. And I would, I could see how a lot of people would call the early ones a failure if they were to just stop and look at like two or three months of data and say, okay, we tried it. Didn't work. Let's move on. But, um, we just believe in ourselves that we have an amazing product and that if we market it right and we, and we really prove out, you know, the value that people will buy it. So that's kind of been the mantra that we've lived and died by. How has brick and mortar fit into this? Cause you know, what made you decide to open a store given that it seems that you were so focused on digital and that's such a big part of what you're doing is sort of the ease and the, the, you know, the affordability of the product. Yeah, I was, I was against I was, anything traditional I'm against, by the way. I mean, I think it's just the nature of my generation. It's just like, you tell me to do a billboard, I'm going to just tell you to go watch some Facebook advertising videos because you have no idea what you're talking about. But um, the retail thing just kept coming up because, you know, the way I saw it was, all right, listen, maybe it's not going to be terribly profitable. You know, maybe it even loses money on a small scale. But to me, I was willing to give up that money for the sake of the customer and the experience that they would have. Being able to introduce new products to them in the store is much different than getting an email that says, hey, try out these jeans, right? Digitally, good luck. So I was like, at least we can create an experience for them where they can walk in, feel the clothing, say, oh, wow, they actually do active wear too. I didn't even know that. And then they can grab it, feel it, try it on. So from that perspective, I was like, it's worth it. Because I, I really just want to do right by the customer. And I want to make sure that uh, we're giving them the best possible opportunity to purchase what we have. And um, so even though we're basically break even on the on retail, um, I still see it as a huge win for the customer. And we just brought in a guy who uh, used to run all the retail for Untuck It. And now he's going to try to really make us profitable on retail so we can ramp it up and you know hopefully make something of it. I mean, they were they were some of the early entrants of uh, DTC stores. I remember going to Untucket stores, so that's yeah. a smart person to bring on. He's great. I'm really excited about him. We'll see how it proves out. I'm I'm still not like totally convinced that we can make retail insanely profitable, but you know, we'll see. If it, if it's profitable, listen. If we ramp it up, that will tell you right there if we were profitable or not. If we keep it at five stores forever, then you'll know where we stand on the the PNL. All right, I'll check back in nine months and see you know, if you've added any locations. Um, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to get into some of the future stuff. And we've hit on some of it, but just if you want to, you know, what what are you thinking about for the year to come? I know that I think last year, last summer, you guys announced um, you were going into different international geographies. Is that still a major play? What are you thinking about in terms of the growth? Yeah, so we turned on international last July, and it was like 30% of the business overnight. So that was monster for us. And we, it was literally just flick the light switch on and go. It, it was, so it was still shipping from the U.S., which is obviously terrible um, because the customer's paying an arm and a leg, but it was better than not doing it at all. So 
and we're completely unoptimized. Like we don't have any native content going into Germany or Mexico or any of these countries that don't speak English. So um, we're just now starting to roll out like some native language content for these uh, places. And we're seeing a huge lift, no surprise, right? You create stuff for them, it's going to do better. So now it's like, okay, how do we get uh, fulfillment centers in these countries? And that is a long, difficult, expensive process. So we're dealing with that now, trying to drop some some fulfillment in different areas that we think are going to be big wins for us. Um, the other big initiative that I'm really bullish on this year is uh, women's. We are ex- oh really yeah well we're, we've been we've been this is something that like women have really wanted for a long time out of us and I think we're just going to try to deliver on it and we're going to do it to the best of our ability. We're going to try to solve a problem for them and and create something that helps them look better, just like they do this does with guys. So we're trying to nail it. You know, we're not trying to rush it. We're trying to survey a lot of women to see what they want. We obviously have a lot of women at the office that have a lot of opinions on um, what they think it should look like and 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 work for them. So, um, I mean, listen, women do all the buying. You know, as you know, they are they are the spenders in this economy. So if we can build something of value for them, I think it'll go really well, and I think it'll just transform the business. But um, but we'll see. You know, I don't know how it's going to go yet. I'm 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 excited about it. I think we're going to come out with some great stuff for them. Um, I hope it all works out. But between those two initiatives, I mean, I really got my hands full. So yeah, it's I mean, would you do you think you would just start with teas for women, or would you? Do you have any idea how would you how you begin that? Yeah, we're gonna do. Uh, we're gonna start small, like like we do with everything, right? We're gonna do like a couple different silhouettes. Um, and keep it really basic and just try to prove out on a small scale if this is something women really resonate with or not. We'll probably do a few activewear things too. Like, I mean, joggers are still quite possibly uh, the highest volume item there is on the internet for women. I mean, women wear joggers like, uh, it's just like their everyday uniform. So um, we're definitely gonna do a jogger, like a couple little active tops, a couple basic, um, you know, cotton poly tops and, uh, and then just see how those go. And if we can, you know, if we can do well, we'll, we'll obviously scale it up and continue to move that category. Got it. Well, Ryan, this has been a great conversation. Thanks for joining. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week.